This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, part of Homeland Security, has awarded a million-dollar grant to a nonprofit. CISA wants the Cyber Warrior Foundation to create a training program to make more cybersecurity practitioners. It's called the Cybersecurity Workforce Development and Training Pilot for Underserved Communities. Here with details, Foundation Chief Operating Officer Jonathan Edwards. Mr. Edwards, good to have you on. Great to talk with you, Tom. How are you today? All right. Let's start with the foundation itself. What does the Cyber Warrior Foundation do? The the Cyber Warrior Foundation was founded to fill to the extent possible the talent gap in cybersecurity with underserved populations, specifically women, persons of color, and veterans. They have historically been left on the economic sidelines, especially the cybersecurity sidelines, and it is our goal to train them so that they not only get the job, but they're good at the job once they get it. So that's our singular focus. And cybersecurity jobs take a hundred different forms. Do you pretty much focus on the technical side, people that can be operators in a, say, security operations center, or maybe also on the policy and and development side? What we do is we train for entry-level jobs. So typically that's going to be an analyst one job, a junior engineer position. Then once the student now professional gets an understanding of the literally thousands of different pathways in cybersecurity, then with those fundamental skills, they can determine which pathway they want to take. But until they get the fundamental skills and until they get that first job, it's very difficult for them to understand, I want to go into management, I want to go into policy, I want to go into whatever direction they want. So this is analyst and junior engineer positions. And is there corporate backing from some of the cyber companies to uh, help the foundation? Not yet, but that's what our plan is. <laughs> we we were founded so that we could help those companies that desperately need talent, and we hope that this CISA grant will provide some ability to amplify what we do to the corporations that desperately need that talent and the corporations that want to and should diversify their professional ranks. And that would also include federal agencies and their own staffing? Absolutely, it does. We had a great presentation by someone from CISA recently, and he was all about making sure that we understood that the DOD or DHS or CISA specifically or any number of different federal agencies, they need the talent, they want the talent, and they want to diversify, but not at the expense of the skill set, obviously. All right. So then what specifically are you called to do with this grant then? Specifically, we are targeting two regions in the country, CISA region number one, which is the northeast, essentially the six New England states, and CISA region number four, which is the southeast. That's based in Atlanta, but we're touching about eight different states in the south, ranging from Kentucky, North Carolina, all the way down to Florida. The goal of this project is to develop a system that recruits, retains, and then places underserved populations. And the definition here is, again, women, persons of color, and veterans, but also people in rural America who don't have access to the cybersecurity professional opportunities that people in more urban or suburban geographies have. Uh, We want to give them that option as well, because a lot of these jobs can be remote. So there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to train up people who are really struggling because of the world these days to get a job. And that's what we're going to focus on as well. So will you be developing a way to reach out to get those people in or also the coursework itself that they would undergo to become qualified? We already have a lot of that in place, but we're going to take it for a series of test drives to see how it works in these two specific areas, working with CISA. Our curriculum is a strong curriculum that touches on all facets of cybersecurity at the entry level. 
firewalls and IDPS, malware analysis, packet analysis, security plus, network plus, certified network defender, etc. Beyond that, then, we also want to train someone to understand the practical application that's necessary. A hiring manager doesn't want to know you just have the skills. A hiring manager wants to know that you know how to apply the skills, the who, where, when, and why, to apply in different scenarios. So what we're doing is we are making sure that people have awareness of the program, then access to the program, and then we will help them with job placement or apprenticeship placement as the case merits. We're speaking with Jonathan Edwards. He's Chief Operating Officer of the Cyber Warrior Foundation. And what are the requisites that people need to bring to it in the first place? Because, say, in dense urban areas, you might have underperforming schools and therefore students that have not achieved the aptitude they need, say, in math. In rural areas, there are social problems of a different nature, perhaps. So how do you bring all that together? This is where we're trying to really crack the ceiling, if you will. We believe that we can train virtually anyone with computer literacy skills into cybersecurity. We're trying to break the mold in terms of what hiring managers are looking for with cybersecurity talent. There are a half a million open cybersecurity jobs domestically today, and that number is growing. There aren't enough people who get out of bed every morning saying, I want a career in cybersecurity. So we're planting aspiration in people's hearts and minds. That means that we are developing systems and curriculums that will train someone who has no experience in cybersecurity or in technology with the skills necessary. But it also means that we need to work with hiring managers, HR departments, to help them understand that the talent that wants to be in cybersecurity today isn't necessarily meeting the needs of these companies or government agencies, and they need to rethink how they search, and they need to rethink who they work with to meet their talent needs. So that's the other pretty interesting part of what we're doing with CISA. We're going to train them up, but we're going to work with the private sector, the government sector, nonprofit organizations, whomever, to say, okay, now let's take a real strong look at how you're hiring, who you're hiring, and what your expectations are. And very often the underutilized communities often have a need to, say, develop a work ethic or an understanding of the need that when you have a job, it's nine to five or six to two, whatever the case might be, and it's something real that you've got to stay with. And is there a manner by which you can inculcate that information and that skill as well as the specific cyber skills? Well, to get through our program requires one thing. It requires discipline. There's no two ways about it. It requires a tremendous amount of discipline. Our program is four hours of live remote Zoom instruction per day, five days a week. So that alone takes a tremendous amount of discipline. Plus, it's an hour to two hours of prep work, so you understand what you're confronting that day in the classroom. Then it's probably five to ten hours of homework that is self-paced per week. So the discipline that we instill to get through the program to make sure that you understand the skills and how to apply those skills through a tremendous number of lab-based exercises, that those real-world scenarios that we talked about previously, that discipline, if they can get through the program, will transcend into the work world where they say, okay, this is what it takes to succeed in a cybersecurity job. And what about the requirement that they have a reasonably operable laptop computer and broadband, because that's an issue in a lot of rural areas and some urban areas. It absolutely is. That digital divide exists. We have certain minimum requirements for computers that we need students to have because we install virtual machines. 
so that people can understand penetration threats in different operating systems, in different scenarios that different companies or agencies might have. So they do need those minimum requirements. What we do, however, is we have partnerships with individuals and, and organizations that will help people who don't have a laptop. Now, we can't help people who don't have the broadband necessary because of the rural areas. That's the challenge, and, and I hope that the infrastructure bill starts to solve that problem down the road. But we work closely with people who, if someone just has no means to have a sufficient computer or laptop, we try to meet those needs. We're not always successful, but yes, there are minimum requirements for memory and, and other capacities. So what will the metrics for success be in this pilot after three years for you and for CISA? Well, at the end of the day, we want to place every single student that goes through the program in either an apprenticeship that transcends into a job or a job itself that bypasses the need for an apprenticeship. Either or works for us. We want placement beyond that because this is a pilot. We also want to well document the best practices so that we can hopefully work with CISA down the road years out to bring this program not just to the southeast and the northeast but across the united states because the entirety of the united states needs the skill and they need the diversification within the profession and briefly what are the outreach mechanisms so that you can get this opportunity before the people that you want to serve it's a lot of shoe leather and it's a lot of online leather we will be working closely and we have historically worked closely with community colleges with diversity stakeholder individuals, with workforce stakeholders, with the urban leagues of the world. We have great partnerships, one in Boston with the Massachusetts Technology Leadership Council and one in Georgia with the uh, Technology Association of Georgia. They're going to help us find students and will also, most importantly, help us find the companies willing to place, again, either in jobs or apprenticeships. So we're developing the technicals necessary to recruit the students and to recruit the employers. It's a time-consuming effort, but we're excited with the partnerships that we have, and we're really excited to expand those partnerships to recruit that talent. And you're optimistic. Extremely optimistic. We know our curriculum works. We have historically had people going through our program that are placed in jobs before they even get their certificate of completion. The demand is there. We just need to instill the talent and, again, the discipline. So I'm extremely optimistic about our success. CISA is 1,000% behind what we're doing. They want to see us succeed. I've been told that we do and we are going to provide them with a solution to something that they've been trying to figure out for a very long time. And so the excitement is both I know we can succeed, but the excitement is also we are partnering with the federal government to help them perform their job and to meet the needs of protecting our country against cyber threat. Jonathan Edwards is Chief Operating Officer of the Cyber Warrior Foundation. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. I appreciate it a lot. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. 
Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Uh, And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, It's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Um, absolutely. Um, What I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? 
you have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they gonna say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect, thank you. Yeah, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the US Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure.
Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.